Good morning. It's great to be back. I always miss you when I'm out. Um, and you'll forgive the theologian in me this morning, but uh, whenever they make me sing something that doesn't agree with the Word of God, I just, I just have a little inside, and I got to get it off my chest or I can't preach my sermon. <laughs> that you would bear my cross... Did that make you react, or did you just sing it and said, oh, ah, that's great. He bore my, my cross. I thought he called me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. Are we on the same page? We reading the same Bible? Okay. So he didn't, take, he didn't bear my cross. He bore his that nobody else in the world could bear. For our sakes, but he didn't bear mine. He's calling me to bear mine and you to bear yours. Okay, that's what drinking the cup is about, us bearing our cross. Okay, I know I didn't get any amens on that, but, and I know it's, somebody's saying, picky, 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 pastor, come on. Sorry, <laughs> but 35 years of theology teaching, uh, this kind of does something to your brain. So, just when you sing it, you remember, and you make the little switch in your head uh, that you would bear your cross for my sake and for everybody's sake so that I could bear mine following you. Okay, all right, we can move on. Mm. This past week, we quietly transitioned into what's traditionally known as Lent, didn't we? Did you feel it? Those 40 days prior to Jesus' passion. And for some, that transition maybe wasn't so quiet because it was preceded by several days of noisy indulgence, reveling, merrymaking. You know, that's the, the popular sense of carnival, isn't it? Uh, it? Maybe not, we don't experience it quite to that extent here, but in some places they do. Uh, you know, before settling down to the fasting and the austerity of Lent, which of course is the traditional Catholic sense. Um, in fact, this past weekend, last weekend, um, a fellow professor from the seminary and I uh, were flying to Tenerife for some theology and New Testament classes. And the crew of our flight just assumed that we were all aboard headed to carnival celebrations down in Tenerife. They spoke to us as carnavaleros. <laughs> we punched each other and said, we really look like carnavaleros, don't we? <laughs> uh, we did see some really extraordinary costumes during the weekend. And I'm sure the Canary costumes are not as extravagant and flamboyant as in Brazil, for example, or many other places in Latin America. But anyway, um, this is that same period that we're looking at in our scripture today. The 40 days prior to Jesus' passion and what's going on in his head and what's going on in the thoughts and feelings of the disciples as they walk with him and feel that tension. So since the context 
of this passage we're going to look at is so important, I would like for us to <coughs> review it carefully before we look at our text. And specifically, it's about his ministry in Perea in, in Judea, Matthew 19 and 20, as he's making his way toward Jerusalem for the last time. And he's well aware of it. So we, we start there in chapter 19 and discover that Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees, as usual, trying to test him, hoping to catch him in his words. And the specific issue that they're dealing with is marriage, marriage and divorce, I should add. It's a thorny subject, isn't it? But whatever we do in this area, Jesus clarifies in verse 12, it should be for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, let kingdom priorities illuminate your marriage or your singleness because Jesus talks about both here. Let Jesus' kingdom help you to see clearly through your problems, your struggles on either side of that line, whichever place you find yourself. Well, that's just the first one underscore the word kingdom because the second encounter we find here is a confrontation with his disciples and the issue is about children and the kingdom because you remember the disciples didn't want those children bothering send them out to classes oh <laughs> well no no illusion intended no they're being taken care of <laughs> We trust that this was good priority for them to go to their classes. But it's so that they can come to Jesus, right? Because he said, of such is the kingdom. That simplicity, that innocence, that humility mm, has many applications. But first of all, we don't want to put hindrances between the children, uh, between the, the church. Sorry between Jesus and the children here at church. We don't want our church to put obstacles in the way we deal with children, right? We're on the same page. The same in your marriage, folks. You don't want to put obstacles or hindrances between your children and Jesus by the way you conduct your marriage. Okay? Nobody's saying anything, so I guess you're with me. Mm -hmm. And, of course, then we carry that on out into the broader field of education where there are lots of hindrances between our children and Jesus. Yes? More and more, if your children are in public school, whew, watch out because they're going to raise hindrances between your children and Jesus, and you better be on top of it. Parents, I hope you're hearing me. But that's not what the sermon's about today, so i got to keep going <laughs> for another day. So starting in verse 19, we find another issue here. It's the encounter with the rich young ruler. Mm. And the subject focuses on possessions and eternal life. Although behind the scenes, the subject is still the kingdom. Because as that young man goes away, saddened by Jesus, what Jesus has told him, Jesus explains his problem in terms of the kingdom. 
how material things can become such an impediment to the kingdom, to our participation in God's kingdom. So it's another warning here. And immediately after that, Jesus finishes off the conversation there with a promise to the disciples in regard to following him and the kingdom results that are going to come about in their lives because they have determined to follow him with their whole hearts and lives. Okay? And then right afterward, beginning in chapter 20, Jesus tells them a parable of the kingdom, probably not one of their favorites. Maybe it's not one of your favorites either because it suggests that those who come into the kingdom last are going to receive the same reward as those who came in first and were working all day long. Does that sound like a proper way to do things? It's a fascinating teaching, and I suspect it was intended to pique the disciples' sense of justice. After that, you have to realize his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our ways, and what he's trying to do is... Romper nuestros esquemas. Get us to let go of our molds and ways of thinking and doing so that he can reformat us according to his kingdom. Immediately following, we have what we might call the immediate context. We've looked at the general context. Now we look at the immediate context. And it's Jesus' third announcement of his passion. He doesn't try to explain it in terms of its connection with the kingdom, but it has everything to do with completing the work of his kingdom because that's what he's going to be doing there in his passion, completing the work of establishing the kingdom on earth. So following all this intensive teaching on the kingdom, we have the incident of today's text which is, if you remember still, James and John coming with their petition with their mother. And the question we want to ask as we listen in on this conversation is, what is the pattern of the kingdom that we see here? Is there a pattern in all these texts that we are seeing especially clearly in what Jesus teaches in this section? What's the pattern? So James and John have an interesting relationship with their teacher and Lord because their mother and his mother were most likely sisters. Are we aware of this? You have to put together the pieces of the puzzle, but in Matthew 27, she's called the mother of the sons of Zebedee, just like in this passage. Whereas in Mark's gospel, parallel passage, She's called Salome, or in Spanish we say Salome. So I may say it that way sometimes. I tend to slip over. But in John's gospel, apparently the same person there at the foot of the cross is identified as Jesus' mother's sister. Oh, are we following all this? This would make James and John Jesus' first cousins. And their mother, his aunt. Yes? All right. 
How would you have felt if you'd been among those disciples and you realized that these colleagues of yours were attempting to control outcomes, planning to leverage their advantage, their mother, so that they could further their own ambitions? How would you feel? Or or could it be that they were just... mm, shall we say, putting themselves at Jesus' disposal, making sure he knew they were available for whatever was needed. (laughs) It doesn't really feel fair, does it, if you're one of those other disciples? Like they're getting a leg up on us, and they don't deserve that. could almost feel like nepotism. I mean, none of us would have ever considered such a low-down move, would we? Mm -hmm. You're not reacting. (laughs) I mean, after all, James and John probably believed themselves peculiarly qualified to occupy certain positions. Uh, They would only be furthering the plans of Jesus' kingdom, nothing else. Mm. And, you know, we really can't know for sure, did this idea come from the two brothers or from their mother? Was she actually the ambitious one? What we can see clearly, though, are the lessons that Jesus is going to draw out of this encounter. And he's going to lay it out before his disciples in that teachable moment. So we want to exegete this text. We want to draw out its implications for those recurrent patterns of the kingdom and what this means in terms of the cross and What is its application to our discipleship? Are you with me? This is a joint effort. I can't pull it off by myself. So get with it, all right? Stay with me. If you need to open your Bible, we're in Matthew 20. And we're trying to go through this encounter between Jesus and his aunt and cousins. And you notice, first of all, how how Salome approaches Jesus with such deep respect. She understands him to be the long-awaited Messiah, even if he is her nephew. So literally she comes, the text says, kneeling and asking. I don't know if she's kneeling multiple times or she just comes up close, fairly close, and just kneels. And says her petition from that kneeling position. But without specifying what it is she's wanting. So Jesus facilitates this slightly awkward encounter. By saying to her, what is it you want? And she immediately proceeds to spell it out. Oh, just grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. Poca cosa. And the text says that Jesus responds to them, meaning they're all three there together. And he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. There's seven or eight words if you divide the contraction here in English. In the Greek, it's just four words. It could correspond to the Spanish as, mm, no sabéis qué pedís. Four words. (laughs) You do not know what you are asking. 
And that's followed immediately by a sharp-pointed question. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Are you able? Now, it's a loaded question. But the boys, the boys don't think twice. We can. We can. We're able. They answer with brimming with confidence. So Jesus informs them, oh, you will indeed drink from my cup. He already knows what's ahead in their future, just like he knows what's ahead in yours. Is that comforting or scary? But then he tells them to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. All right, let's go over this conversation again. We didn't get it all just by reading through it. Let's think about its structure. It consists very simply of the request and Jesus' response, right? Okay, so the request is actually stated in terms of a parable. Do we pick up on that? Yeah. Salome phrases her request in terms of the throne room where the king actually sits on his throne to execute the business of his reign. Does this mean in heaven we're just going to sit around and do nothing except sit? (laughs) I don't think so. It's just a parable. So, you know, don't get carried away thinking about things that the text is not trying to tell us. But she thinks of it in these terms because she wishes for her sons to be there at those prominent places on his immediate right and left. In other words, those places of maximum honor and glory and authority. That's basically what she's requesting, isn't it? Which is what provokes Jesus' comment that you don't know what you're asking. And again, it's not just directed to Salome. Because it's in plural. We don't notice it in English uh, because the you and the thou, we don't use thou anymore. And so it just sounds like you might be saying it to her or to anybody. But in the Greek, just like in Spanish, it's very clear. If I were to put it in my East Texas dialect, I would say, y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Or if you're from the north in the U.S. or somewhere else in the world, maybe you'd say you guys. You know, somehow distinguish the you singular from the you plural. He says it in plural. He understands this is a three-way conspiracy. (laughs) And none of them had any idea just what they were asking. Because they simply, they could only think in terms of a this-worldly kingdom. They haven't yet caught the vision of a spiritual kingdom. Have we? How often do we ask in ignorance? Not thinking, really, about Jesus' kingdom and whether it has anything to say about my prayer petitions. Mm. But you remember the Lord's Prayer, right? We do remember the words, and we do remember what's supposed to be top priority according to the Lord's Prayer. What is it? Your name, your kingdom come, and your will. 
Those are supposed to be the top priorities. That's why Jesus put them first in that prayer. That's what should be governing all our prayer life, everything we ask, everything we talk about with the Lord, if we're really in tune with him, should be conditioned by our seeking first the kingdom. So James and John are not really thinking about kingdom priorities, but more about personal ambitions. Can we agree on that? I mean, it was such a frequent topic among the disciples, wasn't it? Do you remember how many times in the Gospels they are caught arguing about who's going to be the greatest? You know, elbowing to see who can get ahead uh, with Jesus. Leveraging their advantage, whatever it is. Trying to control outcomes. Does that sound like us? How often are our prayer lives limited to those same blinders? It's a thought question. You've got to hang on to it and work with it. As you, as you pray. You do pray, right? Okay, a few heads nodded. <laughs> so Jesus asks them that critical question, but it's also phrased in parabolic terms. Did you notice? The question he asks them is a parable. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Well, I mean, give it to me, Lord, I'll drink. No, it's not literal language. It's parabolic Language, And the lack of hesitation in their answer is a clear indication they haven't given this a second thought. As if the cost of discipleship did not merit any kind of serious reflection. Have we seriously thought about what following Jesus with my whole heart, mind, and soul is going to do? is going to require? Or did I think I could just, sort of, you know, get by, just mix in among the crowd, they're at church, and nobody will notice I'm not really following wholeheartedly. I mean, I'm showing up. Isn't that enough? You answer the question for yourself. I'm not your judge. I'm just asking you to take seriously Jesus' words. So Jesus doesn't, reprimand them for their response. He just tells them they will indeed drink his cup. Which should provoke a question in uh, in us, no? Like, what was that cup referring to? Yeah, or we don't need to talk about that. Because in another setting, think of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was speaking in these same terms, wasn't he? Asking the father if it were possible for the cup to pass him by. And you know, some interpret that cup as the cup of the father's wrath, don't they? We have to be consistent in our interpretation here. If in chapter 26 of Matthew, it's the father's wrath, then in Matthew 20, Jesus would have been telling James and John, they too were going to have to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Does that make sense? Okay, a few brave souls are saying no out there. Of course it doesn't. It's a matter of exegesis, drawing the meaning out of the text rather than eisegesis, which is reading your own thoughts into the text. It's not always easy to avoid that, But we want to do our best 
not to just read our biases and prejudices into the text. What we've heard, just assume from the context of Scripture, we conclude that the cup actually represents the communion of suffering that Jesus and his disciples will be subject to in this world. He had even promised them, John 16, 32, that in this world you will have affliction, tribulation, troubles. But be of good courage. I have overcome the world. That's our hope. Paul in Philippians 3 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship. That's communion. The word in the Greek is koinonia. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. That's the cup. Jesus told his disciples, no disciple is greater than his master. No servant is greater than his master. No disciple is above his teacher. So the gospels make clear that on the night he was betrayed, he was delivered into the hands of, you remember? You don't remember. He was delivered into the hands of sinners, it says, multiple times in the Gospels. He was delivered into our hands. And those sinners proceeded to do to him what was in their hearts, which represents what, was in, what is in our hearts, right? This means that actually it was humanity's wrath that Jesus was suffering on that cross. Not God's wrath, not the Father's wrath. God was not the bloodthirsty one in that scene. Human beings were. We were the ones who wanted God's blood. Do we not see it? So this was not about Jesus paying God off so that he could forgive us. It was about us humans expressing our maximum rage against a loving creator, torturing him to death, which he so humbly accepted at our hands, forgiving instead of annihilating us as we deserved. It was the incarnation of our forgiveness of our redemption, of our salvation. That's what Jesus was doing, enfleshing it before our very eyes. Okay, so back to the conversation, right? With James and John and Salome. It ends with Jesus' commentary on those places of honor, doesn't it? It wasn't his responsibility to assign those places. God would take care of that. And if James and John had known who would actually occupy those places at his left and his right in the moment of being hoisted up on that earthly throne, they would have been horrified at their own request, wouldn't they? Thief number one and thief number two got to occupy those places of honor. An honor for one of them, the one who recognized Jesus for who he was, and confessed him and got personally ushered into paradise by the king. Can you imagine what an honor? Wow. 
Okay, we move to the second half of the passage, verses 24 to 28, where the other disciples begin to get wind of what these two cousins were up to. And were they ever put out? Whoa! Indignant that these brothers would try to get a leg up on the rest of them. This was so unfair, so unjust, when in fact, I really think all of them would have done the same thing given the opportunity. So, we're going to look at the structure of this section the same way as in the first one. Again, it's a very simple structure. Uh, The reaction from the others as the truth came out and the response from Jesus drawing out the lessons to be learned. So, as far as the reaction, we've already mentioned indignation. We can flesh that out in terms of jealousy, rival, rivalry, egotism, envy, pride. Can you think of some others? <laughs> okay. And Jesus' response. What does he do? Does he start lambasting them, hitting them over the head? No. Jesus doesn't treat you that way either. He is so gentle, even when we're out of the ballpark. He's so gentle. He calls them together. Look, guys, let's talk this through. He appeals to them on the basis of what they themselves can observe in the world. What are earthly rulers like, guys? Take a look. Pay attention. And then he contrasts those patterns of the world with those of his kingdom. It's the teachable moment. He's trying to help them understand this. It's an exercise we need to pay close attention to because we are so susceptible to the impact of our world's patterns on us. We're being bombarded by it 24-7. It's influencing the church with its ways much more than we are impacting the world with the gospel. That's a confession. Can we all make it this morning? And repent of it and say, oh, God, help us. Save us from that. We have to wake up to this reality and hear Jesus' voice on it. So what are the key ideas here that we can say reflect those patterns? Patterns of this world versus patterns of the kingdom. Well, even indignation, which we mentioned to begin with, Even indignation can be a kind of manipulative maneuver, can't it? If you're putting the pressure on someone to conform to your criteria, whether you're right or wrong, by being indignant about what they've said or what they've done, it's it's manipulation. (laughs) Yeah, it's worldly. So what else do you see there, though? How the world acts that Jesus is telling us we need to avoid. Do you see it? I need you to work. Look at the text. Read it. What does it say? Simple Bible study. The rulers, the Gentile, rulers of the Gentiles, what do they do? Lord it over. Yeah. What else do they do? Wield power. That's it. Yeah. That's what they do. So, Jesus goes on to say, yeah, and and they're basically hungry for worldly greatness, control over people and things. They're actively seeking to be first, to, to be served. This is the worldly pattern. This is 
the human ego. We can find it in our own heart very easily, can't we? And then what does Jesus say? He tells them flatly and emphatically, it shall not be so among you. I think that's where he raised his voice. (laughs) I think that's where he slowed down and said, no, that's not the way. And now he's going to underscore, well, what should it look like among us? Well, the first thing that he says there in saying not so with you, he's telling them you are not to imitate the world's patterns. The world's ways are not my ways. The world's thoughts are not my thoughts. Don't go that direction. Because it's not about controlling people or using force in the kingdom, not in my kingdom. It's about service, humility, not seeking first place, putting the interests of others first, even laying down your life for the sake of others. This is what 1 John 3.16 says, isn't it? We know John 3.16. Sometimes we forget 1 John 3.16. It's about laying down our lives for the brethren and sisters. Rescuing, even. Rescuing. It's part of it. That's Jesus' mission that he's inviting us to be a part of, to be involved in firsthand. It's, it's also what the cup of communion is about. Because when do we see Jesus establishing this pattern with maximum clarity? Do you need a hint on this? about the cross when he lays down his life as a ransom that's when he is living out the pattern of the kingdom to its ultimate consequences it was the maximum confrontation it was the showdown between the God of the universe and the enemy of your soul he had taken us all captive He had made us his partners in crime. So Jesus acts as the suffering servant, the kinsman redeemer in this passage by identifying fully with the defenseless defenseless captives. That's you and me. Even letting himself be taken captive by the enemy Submitting to their torture all the way to death. That means, you know, the the cross is not about magic. He was actually there carrying out the battle, resisting the maximum assault of the evil one without succumbing to sin, without succumbing to revenge or bitterness, just being faithful to his calling, reigning from that miserable throne we gave him overcoming the strong man in our favor by forgiving sin, all of it, so that he could enter the enemy's lair, the ultimate domain of death, and demonstrate that even there, Satan did not have the last word. Wow, is that comforting or what? 
That means his very life was serving as the ransom that broke the hold of the enemy, that tore open the gates of death with his indestructible life. And that's why he can offer us hostages, freedom that we need, freedom from our enslavement, freedom from all the junk, freedom from the enemy, freedom to be who he called us to be. Simply by confessing his name, this has serious implications for discipleship, especially as we come to this communion table this morning. We want to consider our lives according to kingdom patterns, the ones we see illustrated in this scripture, the ones we see in our Savior's sacrifice. We're called to be servants. The Greek word technically means slaves. Nobody better to be the slave of than Jesus, the one who loves us, the lover of our souls. Identify, therefore, with the humble and lowly of this world, not raise ourselves up above them, but realize we're all on the same level here. We're called to surrender our lives in the service of the cross. The cross becomes our reference point for everything in life. We're called to share that cup of suffering. The cup of blessing is also a cup of suffering. Isn't that ironic? Just means that as we participate in this bread and this cup, we have to assume the individual responsibility. What I'm committing to here is to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to be of service and witness on behalf of the lost, the, the, the bowed down of our world, the oppressed. That's, that's our calling. Are we up to this? Are we able to drink this cup? Will we answer like James and John? Oh, yeah, you bet, Lord. Or will we stop in our tracks and be humbled and be called to pray and realize, Lord, I'm not adequate for this. I need you to take control. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless you for your example for your surrender, your sacrifice, the depth of your love and your forgiveness. Please format us, imprint our inner being with your truth and grace. Engrave your name on our being, Lord Jesus, that we may know how much we are truly yours in your precious name.